This is the Ethics Lab Podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. I've found um, that if I can stay present, then I'm not ruminating in the past or potentially fretting about the future. COVID-19 has caused all of us to prepare, and it has also demanded something from us. We hear many stories of the technical and resource preparation. Today, we speak with three physicians from California and Washington State about their preparation and what it has demanded from them. We hear people in frontier territory wanting to offer their best. Some might even call this the crafting of virtue. Dr. Bethany Cap is dual-boarded in emergency medicine and palliative medicine and working just south of Seattle and Tacoma, Washington. Dr. Mojde Talibian is a pulmonologist and ICU physician working in Redwood City, California, and Dr. Anita Chandrasena, also a pulmonologist who also works in Redwood City, California. Three physicians responding to COVID-19 and diving deep. This episode was recorded on April 1st. My name is Kevin Murphy, and this is Ethics Lab. Mojde, what is the work you're engaged in now regarding COVID-19? Uh, what I am uh, actively engaged in right now is preparation. Um, as uh, you know, this sort of came somewhat rapidly, um, and um, we caught ourselves in a situation where uh, are we prepared to manage um, such large volume of patients as they come. So uh, fortunately, we have a very close niche uh, group of uh, clinicians in our hospital, and we have provided um, a team, a task force team that we meet uh, twice daily now, uh, sort of going through the preparation process, um, um, inventory of what we have available, and assigning um, roles uh, in uh, different areas, who should do what. So um, so that's what we're doing on a daily basis. And, and uh, it has been a learning process, um, not having ever been in a, a crisis situation like this, um, no- noticing areas where um, there's definitely some deficiency and it sort of makes you pause and and um, think about resources that are necessary, not ne- not even during the uh, crisis time. So, so it's been a really eye-opening experience. Thanks, Mojde. Anita, how about yourself? Sure. Um, so my role has <clears throat> evolved over the last couple of weeks with, with preparing for coronavirus. When we first had our first cases in the Bay Area, it was an all-hands-on-deck situation, making sure that we were focused on our policies, that we made sure that, you know, we had um, the right steps in place to protect our teams, um, really understanding uh, very quickly what we needed to do to um, operationalize all of the um, PPE requirements, the reporting requirements to our local departments of public health, reconciling some of the differences in policy, for example, between the CDC's guidelines and local Departments of Public Health. So at the beginning, it was sort of jumping in, figuring out how we needed to deal with the crisis at the moment and helping to support our facilities. Since then, we've gotten more comfortable managing our coronavirus patients in the hospital, and we've switched to, as Mojde was just sharing, 
kind of now stepping back and preparing for the surge. And so in my role, I work with my counterpart um, for the northern part of our division um, so to sort of help prepare all seven hospitals as a team to uh, anticipate the expect, you know, expected volume of patients we're going to see with coronavirus. Um, some of that is just looking at, do we have enough people? Do we have enough space? Do we have enough personal protective equipment? And then what resources do we need to procure for us to be as successful as possible in caring for these patients when the surge comes? So switching initially from more um, hands, all hands on deck, let's get through these first couple of patients and get comfortable in taking care of them to now stepping back and looking more at the big picture um, of how do we prepare for the surge. Bethany, what work are you engaged in now? The palliative care team has been involved in just a, a multitude of things. Um, initially, we too were involved in preparation um, and we have really um, shifted over to um, to taking an active role in, in responding. I would say that the most uh, important thing that we're doing right now is assisting patients and families in eliciting goals of care. Um, we are also assisting with symptom management at end of life. Um, another important role that has evolved for us over over the course of the past uh, several weeks to months is assisting the hospital in developing um, guidance for communication. And um, when I when I say communication guidance, I mean around things such as explaining the visitation policy in the hospital, explaining our PPE policy in the hospital, explaining. Um, discussing with families and making a recommendation about uh, whether or not it would be appropriate um, for them to visit in the hospital um, as being the one visitor that's allowed. Um, the other thing that we have been actively involved in is peer-to-peer -peer support, both informally and formally. Bethany, has your region experienced the surge? I think that we are starting to experience the surge here, yes. Given that, what would you say is most important for all of us to be paying attention to right now? Gosh, that's such an important question. Uh, and I think there's probably many, many answers to that. Um, from, from my perspective, um, coming from my role as a palliative care physician, I, I would say that um, one of the most important things that, that we can all do right now is to talk to our loved ones and to sit and think and make an advanced care plan for ourselves. Think about what, what type of care would I want if I became critically ill with COVID-19. And the second most important thing to do right now would be to designate your medical power of attorney. So all these things that we've been asking our patients to do are just as important for us to do. And with that in mind, I would say the other really important thing that we have been doing here is we have been rapidly assessing goals of care in anyone that has been identified as critically ill. So, I mean, someone that is en route to the emergency department, maybe 10 minutes out, and they have been identified as, as critically ill by EMS or someone that has arrived at the emergency department, or maybe this is someone that is on the medical floor in the hospital and is getting sicker. But 
once we identify these individuals, we have been proactive um, in requesting that we be called to initiate a goals of care discussion to help patients and families discern what the best possible care is for them so that we can provide goal concordant care, um, which has actually here, I think, been really effective. I have heard um, some good feedback from our emergency medicine and ICU colleagues that having us come in early to do a rapid, immediate discussion um, in our critically ill people has allowed patients and families to have immediate, real-time information. It helps us to establish a relationship with them so that they have a point of contact throughout the hospital. And it also has helped to reduce moral distress in our staff around providing gold discordant care. And what I mean by that is the concern that maybe this person wouldn't have wanted the type of care that we're providing. So we're really trying to be sure that we are providing the best possible care to individuals according to them. What are the questions you and your colleagues are trying to figure out right now? I give you an example that I actually worked on yesterday and back to Bethany's um, uh, comment about things that they used to be second nature. You pause and you have to reevaluate your next step. And um, um, being a critical care physician, one of the areas that we are very um, always focused on is in the setting of a um, um, cardiac arrest. If someone has a cardiac arrest, what do you do and who is part of that team? And generally speaking, I mean, this is one of the one of the situations that everybody runs in there and everybody wants to lend their helping hands and we always welcome that. However, yesterday I was working on a team that who will go to that next cardiac arrest and minimizing it to, I mean, usually we have like 10 people going there and yesterday we, we minimize it to four. And of course, to assigning those roles to those four people and deciding that that is going to be enough support, that is a huge task. But also the flip side of it is that I don't want 15 people to be exposed. Um, I only want to expose four people. But, but the counter argument was that, well, are we providing enough support for those four people? And are we putting them in a higher level of risk by not having that extra support? So there was a lot of communication back and forth and sort of tweaking it and bringing it down to the, the least and leanest team possible that can provide the maximal um, support for that patient, but yet not putting everybody else at risk. So back to sort of rethinking our, you know, historic strategies that are embedded in our, in our brain, but sort of changing it um, to fit the current crisis. Anita, anything to add? Yeah, so I've been working on things in a little bit of a different way. Um, most recently, you know, we've had to address the question of masks and who should wear a mask, what type of mask should they wear, and do we have enough supplies? So kind of a different side of the preparation um, conversation. So, you know, the guidance and information we're receiving from the CDC and other experts, other countries where they've addressed the COVID um, pandemic um, is really helping to inform how we make decisions in our operations today in our facilities. And from two weeks ago to today, the guidelines have changed on what type of a mask could be worn in taking care of a patient with coronavirus. Um, and now we're looking at 
you know, should everyone in a hospital wear a mask because of the prevalence of community spread and because of new information that's being learned about how the virus is behaving and our risk of transmitting it even when we don't have symptoms potentially. So most recently, it's been sort of putting aside what we know even from our standard um, you know, information that we had about viruses to, to a bigger picture of who should wear masks and when and what masks should they wear. And then the big question sort of ethically is, you know, do we have enough supplies? Um, what happens if we don't? How are we monitoring this? And so that's been um, a big challenge to figure out what the right thing to do is um, on this front. We want to protect our staff, our physicians, our employees, and our patients. And we also want to make sure that when we, um, you know, have more volume that we'll have enough PPE to go around. So this has been a really big challenge that our team has been struggling with, really wanting to do the right thing, but also be good stewards of our resources. The other item, very similar vein, is about lab testing. You know, many people have heard that um, we don't have enough lab testing supplies across the country in order to test every individual um, as maybe they did in other countries um, ahead of us. And so understanding how to get resources to our communities to um, get testing turned around quickly and efficiently so we can get patients and caregivers the results they need, but also you know, that has implications on um, utilization of our precious um, PPE resources. So lab and masking are the two things I've been focused on the most in the last couple of days. What do you feel is most important to communicate to patients or colleagues right now? One of the things that I've that I have been thinking about um, that I that I think my other people might find beneficial to think about as well is is the idea of presence. Um, and I've been thinking about presence, um, both in terms of ourselves and others. And when I talk about presence, um, I, I mean presence in, in terms of I am going to stay in the present moment um, in order to allow myself to, to be productive in, in living, loving, and working, whatever it is that I'm, I'm trying to do. I've found um, that if I can stay present, then I'm not ruminating in the past or potentially fretting about the future. So that has been something that has really helped to ground me and that I have been working with my team um, in terms of utilizing some mindfulness and meditation um, activities that are available to us. And the other thing that I would say is presence to others. Um, this is something that's even more important now when our patients are alone. Um, many of them unable to maybe even communicate by phone because they are too sick. And so our presence as healthcare professionals might be the only human connection that these individuals have. And that is just so critically important. And I would just ask that people consider that for the, for the moments or for the minutes that you are in someone's room, that you try to intentionally shift your attention to 
to that person and give them the gift of your healing presence. Anita or Mojde, anything to add? Thank you, Bethany. I mean, that was, that was amazing. Um, (laughs) As I was thinking about any changes in my day-to-day practice, one thing that um, I'm always, I have always been a patient advocate, but also engaging the family. And as you said, this is the one time that we, uh, we have gone sort of a complete opposite of our conventional practice. We've always wanted to have family members involved. We've always ha- wanted to have them engaged in the decision-making, but now they're eliminated because there is no hospital visitation. So, so that loneliness of the patient, but at the same time, the family's um, feeling of a desperate that they cannot be there for their loved one. They cannot be. So on a day-to-day um, uh, practice, I am spending more time to actually talk to those family members um, and assuring them that we are here, we are, you know, doing our best to take care of their loved ones. And, and that reassurance, I mean, the feedback that you get is amazing. And, and, and the messages that you're the carrier of those messages. I know we have a lot of technology, we have FaceTime, we have, you know, phones, etc. But you know, just the simple words. I, I've been writing messages from patients, family members. Can you please go in there and tell my loved one, you know, specific things? And and it, it just, it, you know, brings both tear and joy uh, to me to be that messenger and, and a huge responsibility that I feel like, you know, mm-hmm. somebody's entrusting me in to be that person for them, be their you know, their voice and be their caregiver. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a huge privilege to be in that position, but also, um, it's, you know, extremely, extremely important. And I hope that all the clinicians will take that extra time as, as things are ramping up. We may not have the, the time to spend extra time to talk to the family members multiple times during the day, but it is extremely important and a huge part of the healing process. So true. Um, I would just add, you know, staying connected as much as we can to each other. You know, we're obviously all social distancing, so we're physically not connected to people that maybe we used to see every day or um, work with um, regularly. And um, it's different, you know, now working um, remotely or even not being able to um, connect with your neighbors or your friends or your family in the same way that you were able to a month ago. And so I just think that um, in times where we're physically isolated, it's really important to not become emotionally isolated from people. You know, there's a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety and worry in the world about what's happening. And um, I don't think it's something that we can get through by ourselves. And so reaching out to our communities, our friends, our families, anyone who will be available to talk to, to listen and have a conversation is so important at this time. And, you know, I would just encourage us all to just make an extra effort, not just, you know, Moje gave an amazing story of connecting family, but even for our doctors and nurses and everyone who's working to support our communities to just take the time to share what you're experiencing, what your emotions are telling you, um, to just make sure you're taking um, extra steps to stay connected in this time. Thanks, Anita. What are the stories that have been aha moments from the past two weeks? From the perspective of, of 
palliative care, we spend a lot of time thinking um, and educating ourselves about the most effective way to communicate with patients and families. Um, and I think that we we also need now to think about how not just how we're interacting with patients and families, but how we're interacting with each other, because it's more important than ever right now. And one of the things that that we talk about in palliative care is the importance of acknowledging emotion. And so um, if we're disclosing serious news, allowing time for the emotion to surface in the room and then acknowledging that, understanding that it is difficult to move forward in a conversation, in a discussion or with a decision-making process until the emotion is addressed. And that is something that we have started doing with staff here um, in a, in a peer, on a peer-to-peer basis and amongst teams, just in terms of acknowledging the emotion in ourselves, naming the feelings that we have and allowing some time to feel it so that it moves through us and then allows us to return back to the present to work more effectively. And so it's it's been um, it's been interesting um, to 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 take some of those tools that that we have been using and and use them on ourselves. Appreciation to our guests today for their advice and reflections. Documents referenced in this episode can be found posted on our Ethics Lab page at missiononline.net. As always, appreciation to our listeners as well. Thanks, everyone. We hope you have enjoyed this edition of the Ethics Lab podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. Ethics Lab was created by Kevin Murphy and Russell Keithline. Thanks for listening. Join us again. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.